podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a popular guest returning this week. Some, some, for some reason, he has agreed to come on this show for the third consecutive year. I am not sure why, but we are happy to have him. He is Grandmaster Jan Gustafsson. Jan, thanks for joining us once again. It's an honor and a privilege to be back. Okay. And we're just going to set the scene with the little bio that they have on Chess24, as well as some other glowing comments. Um, Jan is the face of Chess24, commenting live on top events, challenging users in banter blitz, producing video series, and giving opening advice in his regular clinic. His CV includes winning the 2011 European Team Championship and working on Team Magnus for the World Champions 2016, and now they need to update and say 2018 title defense. Um, How's that for a bio? I'm impressed by your amount of preparation. Like oh. you didn't only do Wikipedia, you did Chess Twenty Four profile as well. It's amazing. You can't trust Wikipedia anymore, so gotta gotta branch out. <laughs> Fair enough. But I also, I mean, I have some um, some bones to pick with you, Jan, because you know I came to grips a while ago with the fact that you're way better at chess than me, and that you speak English better than me, and that you're funnier than me. Uh, I've accepted all those things, but now you're interviewing top players too. So I I don't know where where to go in life. I'm trying to take everything you've got. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But I mean, I've enjoyed these interviews with Anish Giri and of course with a person who will be discussing some Magnus Carlsen. So what's your, uh, I mean, let's start from big picture. Now I, I watched your whole series on Chess 24, which I recommend everyone check out along with uh Peter Heine Nielsen and Laurent Francenet uh, about what it was like to be on Team Magnus. But what's your what's your number one reflection going to be when you think back on this years down the line? What do you think? For me, really, I sh- maybe shouldn't overuse honor and a privilege, but it really means a lot to be involved with something in the chess world that matters. Well, I think we talked about this last time. Of course, I care about my own games and my shows and all that stuff but to be working on a world championship match is just such a thrill like while you're in it it's yeah you're just trying to oh we need to fix this or we still don't have an idea against the petrol so it's not (laughs) joyful it's a lot of work but i'm just yeah very happy to be involved with it and obviously happier since magnus warning it yeah, I mean, it was an entertaining match, um, despite, you know, people grumbling about the draws. I mean, the games themselves were entertaining and, uh, you know, going to a playoff is always good in my mind. But you, since you since you mentioned the Petrov, we might as well just follow up on that. So I obviously no surprise that Fabiano ventured that, but but your your months of research didn't in, uncover anything um, too, too testing for it. Well, I think you could see that. In the match, no real hot takes here, but in general, that White was struggling a little bit to put pressure 
while with black it's somewhat easier these days to have a set repertoire whether you want to be very solid the way fabiano did or a bit more double-edged but still a tight repertoire the way magnus did it normally priority number one is to have your black business in order and then with white it's tough it's much hit or miss and as you can tell from the games there was a lot of missing even though i think in the first tiebreak game magnus got in a very nice little idea it wasn't against the petrov but the c4 whatever it was e5 knight c3 knight f6 g3 bishop b4 e4 and got a great position there so it wasn't all bleak but overall yeah i think with black life was good with white it was tough yeah um and what you know i have a lot of sort of but behind the scenes of behind the scenes because you guys did this awesome series on chess 24 that again I'll, I'll link to it in the show description you guys should already be subscribed to chess 24 but if you aren't you can also buy it a la carte and i think it's like 12 bucks or something which by the way is is not enough but Bargain. You know, yeah it really is um yeah so behind the scenes of behind the scenes one thing i wondered is uh like how far in advance do you start to shape the repertoire and how far in advance do you even know uh, you're going to be on the team? I'm not sure into how much detail I can go there, but I knew a couple months in advance and there were a couple training camps beforehand and then you go to the match. So work obviously goes into it, but you never really know, especially with wide, you're going very broad. Like he played D4, he played C4, he played E4. So you never really know what exactly is going to happen during a match, what the score will be, how you want to adjust, how the boss feels, and so on and so forth. So it's very different than sketching out a repertoire and plans beforehand to the day-to-day while you're actually playing the match. Gotcha. And so, okay, so you're you're involved a couple months in advance, and... Um, for the chess world, Magnus, as you mentioned, he played slightly more dynamically as Black than Fabiano did, um, surprised a lot of people with uh, Shveshnikov. Um, at what point did you know that that was going to be part of the repertoire? There's different options, and frankly, I don't know what point the final decision was made where to go, but obviously it's a topic that comes up in preparation because, as mentioned, with Black, it's sort of easier to, you know, sketch out a repertoire, I'll do this against that, and I'll do this against that. Then with white, where you don't know, for example, you played d4 in the first game, you don't know, will he play, play Queen's Gambit decline, will he play Grunfeld, will he play, whatever, name any opening. So, yeah, that's known in advance where there's sort of running gag during the Olympiad where Laurent Fresinet, my co-second, or my superior, I should say, no, oh, okay. Supervising Prop. powers <laughs> was was playing, <laughs> and I was the Dutch team captain. And every game, I would go to his board to have a very close eye on his <laughs> opening that he wouldn't spill any any secrets. Right? Yeah, I was going to ask about that stuff. I mean, you've got the the tournament in Thailand coming up, which I mean, now now that's already now that it's already happened. If if something were to come up in one of your games, I know you don't treat your chess as seriously as you alluded to as a world championship match, but um, would you now be at, like, feel free to, to use whatever came up in your analysis? It's always a gray area and it depends on people's individual deals and whatnot. For me, my repertoire, I'm not sure is that affected. And I'll be more worried about how can I create winning chances against all these 
underrated, tricky guys I'll be facing, then how do I break Fabiano Corona? So I'm not too worried about revealing secrets there. Yeah, but I... it's it's a gray area. Obviously, you don't want to give away all the ideas or ideas Magnus could use in the future, but you also want to make sort of the best moves. So it's it's tricky. Yeah, and I know you mentioned in our last interview, like the this this idea of a theoretical novelty does not play the role that it used to because uh, every every move has been at least looked at with a computer. Right, right, right. Um, so, but I still want to get a little bit more. I'm interested in the Shveshnikov in particular because I it just seemed. I mean, Magnus didn't have that much experience playing it, so. Do in that for an opening like that, does does an order come down from on high that you're going to prep this, or does does one of the seconds say, "Hey, I have an idea," um, or or how did how did it work in this case? First of all, I don't think it's true. He didn't have much experience playing it. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I'm fairly certain he's played it quite a bit over the last ten years. So it's one of the openings that's always lurking in his repertoire and. As for where the order comes down to, I don't know. It's a very fluid process, but obviously Magnus in the end decides what he's comfortable with okay. and what he's not comfortable with, so he's in charge of it. But you make it sound like maybe you guys had a couple or at least one other thing in mind against E4 if if the, Shve- the Shveshnikov seemed to be working out pretty well. I mean, the, the Rosalima wasn't yielding much for White, and then even when Fabiano started playing that night D5 line, as you guys were saying in the series, it you know, the computer might say that White has a small edge, but it's a, it's a fun position for both sides. Yeah, that's sort of the approach, even though as a second you still want to solve the problems. Of course, it's great to have this human layer of arguably the best player ever, even if things somewhat go wrong, you still don't say, okay, this is a <clears throat> crappy position, but best of luck, you're a good player. And as for other lines prepared, yeah, I'm glad we didn't have to use the hippopotamus which was the, <laughs> the backup plan. Right. But seriously, obviously, I can't go into detail there. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't expect you to say which, which variation of, you know, we're always interested in how the sausage gets made in these uh, world-class uh, preparations. And do you, do you, I mean, I know that We've discussed your your great affinity and your voracious reading of chess books here in the past on the show, but well. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. But I mean, obviously, secretly, obviously, I don't want to sell you short because you know you don't get to be your level of chess without having done done your work. But let's say that right now you're not as uh, steeped in chess literature as um as some other people. Um, you you know you're, a lot of the work you do is on engines, but for something like a world championship match, are you like digging deep into the history, or is that something you kind of feel like you you know pretty well as it is? What history are we talking about? Like the history of world championship matches and uh, teams prepping stuff, and and you know obviously in in the series with uh, Laurent Frissonnet and Peter Heinen Nielsen, you guys referenced a lot of the world championship matches within the past twenty years, which you guys have lived through. But even stuff beyond that, is that like do you do you uh, read up on Kasparov versus Karpov and stuff like that, or is that just like come on, you already know this stuff? I think you have more pressing needs especially in my position where you're just a second working on openings but we have guys like peter heine who's i don't know his record but he's been involved in what is it six of the last seven world championship matches and i think he's won every time so of course he has a lot of experience with what to do in what situation and what happened there and what happened then and even though 
I like to downplay my chess book reading. All of us are reasonably well educated on chess history, I would say. So I don't think it's something you think about during the match, like what happened in Botvinnik Bronstein here, but it's it's there in the background. Okay. That's interesting. And and uh, speaking of the team, I mean, one one untold mystery that we've got to get to from the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes is, you know, you guys didn't mention it in the video series, but it subsequently came out uh, that Daniil Dubov, a uh, young, talented Russian grandmaster, was, was also involved in the team. So was he chilling with you guys in Thailand or, or off in another clandestine location or what? The thing is... I'm thinking generally, generally it's Magnus's job to break who's been involved and in what capacity. And I'm not quite sure I should um, read up on my chess news what has been made public and what not. So I'm not fully comfortable giving too many details there. Hmm, you'll have to ask Magnus on uh, the next time you the next time he pops into Chess Twenty Four. <laughs> what I can say on my next perpetual chess appearance <laughs> or no just ask him the question you know i'm not uh i'm not in this for ego gratification we just want the, the word the word to be out there no 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 <laughs> but, but seriously yeah, it's always a fine line it's not like it's any secrets but yeah i think it's up to magnus what he wants revealed and what he doesn't want revealed <laughs> in this case I, i'm not fully sure what has been revealed and what hasn't gotcha but so we'll have to obviously um... he was involved so during the next world championship, we'll just have to search the resorts of Thailand and uh, draw draw our own conclusion. <laughs> That's right. Check out the guest list. And Some aliases might have been used. <laughs> and were there other people involved as well? I, um, you know, for example, Laurent Frissonnet sort of alluded to a, another mystery person in the video who may or may not have been the aforementioned Daniil Dubov. He said he was having a conversation with another second when the three of you were sitting there. But anyway, I mean, are, are there other people sort of tangentially involved with like training games and stuff like that? Um, he might have meant our boy Niels Grandelius. Ah, right. Yeah. But yeah. Who... Other than that... I have to go back to my previous answer. It's up to Magnus to break who was involved and who okay. wasn't. Okay, Con- continue to plead the fifth. And <laughs> and uh, speaking of training games, I mean, who has the uh, the um, what's the word? The uh, dreadful job of uh, being Magnus's training partner. I think it's normally the better players. So normally. Peter Heine and I get to chill. And <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's not a tight schedule where you say training games against this guy from then till then and so on. But I imagine... I have some still unreleased footage, which I should use someday, of some fun games between Laurent and Magnus. Because Laurent, he's very feisty, even at his advanced age. He's a serious blitz player, so there's, there were some fun games there. Yeah, I mean, 37 years young, uh, peak rating of 2720. Um, and, and he was making an allusion to, to some game of against Magnus where uh, he almost got him. So I, I tried to, to dig into what game that was, but um, there were too many games for me to figure it out. But in any event, yeah, a, a worthy training partner. That's for sure. And yeah, I think Dubov also spoke about that. They played a lot of games. Obviously, we've seen after winning the World Rapid, a fantastic speed 
speed player. So yeah, I'm sure yeah. they did a lot playing too. And speaking of uh, speed, so as we know, Magnus Carlsen won the world championship ultimately in the rapid tie break. I mean, as someone who's on the team, but not there in London, and as you say, uh, uh, Peter Heine Nielsen is kind of heading the team and probably talking more strategy. Um, how, I mean, it's kind of common sense, but uh, like how aware were you guys as the second half of the match comes around that, that the... Um, uh, a tiebreak match would be a fairly desirable outcome at that point. Yeah, I guess Magnus's record in tiebreaks is well documented, but I guess it's dangerous, and I'm not sure if he did much thinking about this to think, okay, I need to draw my five remaining games at this level. That's, yeah, dangerous thinking, even though clearly in the last game he was fine with it, as indicated by his draw offer in a very good position because he liked his chances in the tie breaks and yeah, came through as we've all seen. But other than that, like you can sort of tell from the openings played. Our job is yet to give opening suggestions that he felt, especially with the score being level for so long that a tie break was not a bad outcome, but I don't think it was ever discussed like, okay, we just need to make three more draws and we're there. Okay. And, of course, the, the Game 12, and once again, to, to, to mention your recap, you guys do, do a really good job sort of talking through Magnus's decision to, to take a draw in, in the position that surprised a lot of people. I think most prominently um, Gary Kasparov and uh, Vladimir Kramnik uh, were, were quite outspoken when it happened. And you, obviously are there in Thailand, sweating the matches. Um, how surprised were you on a scale of, of 1 to 10 when when the draw, when this clocks were stopped and suddenly the game was declared a draw? I was mainly annoyed. I was already mentally planning my <laughs> three, three days in Pattaya after he won the 12th ma- yes, game. Champagne on feeling, ice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> champagneing and campaigning. <laughs> but no, I wasn't overly surprised because, yeah, you could sort of tell that he thought a tiebreak would be a decent outcome. I think he even said publicly before the 12th game, if he wants to play, we play. If not, I'm happy with a draw or something. I'm paraphrasing something along those lines. So that wasn't shocking, but of course, we were just watching the games, the game as it went on. And then, of course, the Avengers running and you see, oh, he has this, whatever it was, Bishop A4 business and the computer gives 150 so we we got excited and got our hopes up but then once the result is there you really just uh, thinking okay we have four tiebreak games what what can we do in these games like what openings do we play and you don't reminisce much or oh, he should have played on or he shouldn't like that's that's not the job yeah i mean it was quite the the kerfuffle though did did it surprise you the amount of backlash that that it sort of generated given the Obviously, his incentive is quite clear. I mean, he's doing what he thinks uh, um, maximizes his probability of winning the match. Yeah, I think you and I, we're used to thinking in terms of EV and whatnot. And there, especially with his mind being a little made up, it seemed like in this 12th game, I thought it was a very decent decision because I've never seen him lose a tiebreak match or really losing in any and do or die situation. So 
I thought it was a fine sporting decision and also I have a lot of faith in Magnus knowing what's best for him. I didn't buy for a second that he was cracking under the pressure. I think, yeah, he had made up his mind. And remember that in 2016, was it 2016? Against Kayakin, he did a very similar thing where he was white in the last game and he more or less just made a quick draw in this rookie one Berlin exchanging all the pieces where people were also saying, wow, he's throwing away a white game. I was just, you know, optimizing his chances to win the title, and I was fine with it. Yeah, makes sense. And, you know, speaking of thinking probabilistically, I noticed uh, in the video, Peter Heine Nielsen also seems to have this um, this uh, mental training, or, the, you know, he seems to approach things with this framework, and Magnus sort of famously uh, does as well. Do you know if that's something that he's sort of that comes naturally to him or like sort of a skill that he's consciously developed because it's, it's so important for, for a top level chess player to be practical. I don't know. I can't really speak for him. What I do know is that he's an incredibly smart guy and he knows his stuff in many different fields. Like Peter Heine is a bit of a game theory enthusiast as well. So I'm sure they're having more of these conversations, but I haven't been, around yeah magnus talking that much about these things from as a chess fan it looks to me a bit like he's gotten somewhat more practical when it comes to just wrapping up a tournament win or even a world championship match win over the last couple of years when i recall could be wrong about this in the 2013 match he needed a draw against vichy and he could more or less go for a move repetition but he decided to play on so it feels a bit to me, but I'm not sure if that's accurate, that younger Magnus would just not think very much about the result, but go for the maximum pretty much every time. Gotcha. While Magnus, age 28, is a bit more focused on yeah getting the results, which yeah. I'm not sure if it's experience or energy management or a bit of both. But yeah, he does come through. Okay. All right, a couple more important questions on Magnus, Jan, and then uh, then we'll wow. move, we'll move on if you if that sounds reasonable to you. Um, sports. So were you uh, were you ever um, uh, what's the word uh, roped into any of these uh, these sports? I mean, I know you weren't in London, but prior to that, like uh, soccer games, table tennis, whatever. Were were you uh, ever a victim of uh, Magnus's legendary competitive spirit? And uh, forced to run around and stuff. It's tough. I normally fake an injury early <laughs> in the in the training camp, or <coughs> I'm so sick. I can't right, play yeah. football or paddle or table tennis or what not today. So the other guys had to do more of the heavy lifting there. But seriously, I think yeah, it's important obviously to get into physical shape. And Magnus, he's more of a I was going to say team sports, but I think one-on-one sports is fine with him as well. While I normally like to just go to the gym and hope nobody sees me. Right. So, <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think I've had the honor of playing any sport with you. Uh, do you do you have any that you that you played as a youth? Um, I play a bit of table tennis. I play a bit of football, but I can't, can't really claim any glorious achievements in those fields okay um all right and last question let's suppose that i had a real job and that i was going to try to get them to send me to thailand um, for for work how how would you recommend i do that 
Well, you need you need to get your story straight. Like you should argue some stuff like it's gonna be better to work with the time difference because if not, if we start preparing at midnight and then are done at 10 a.m., we'll be all tired and the work won't be very good. Well, if you have the six-hour difference, then we can just start working early in the morning and be done at 6 p.m., and that's much better. And also, sunshine helps with getting less depressed about the Petrov than rainy <laughs> London. Right. So yeah. I think, even though, obviously, I was hugely in favor of it, that it's also a completely sound decision. And we did the same thing during the New York match in 2016, where we were in Norway, where weather was less good, but the same logic applies, that you have the six hour, six or seven hour time difference, which means the seconds can start working early in the morning, as opposed to in the middle of the night, which, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, it, it does make sense. And I, I, I think it was a brilliant stroke uh, on your part. So, so... When you had Thank the, you. you're welcome. And you know, you, we checked we checked different locations. I had like a six seven hour time difference, and yeah, there are some maneuvering had to be done to make sure it's Thailand and not, let's say, Vladivostok or one of those <laughs> right. places. Yeah, that time zone. No offense to Vladivostok. Right, that's funny. And I and as you mentioned in the video series, if if the next World Championship were to be in Norway, which at least there've been some rumblings about, uh, you're you're well set up for for the next match. Yeah, I'm not sure I'll be involved in the next one, but I think I did a lot of great work for seconds of the future that they can chill in Thailand. Excellent. Yeah. Um, cool. And uh, let's see, a couple, couple more on this match. Um, again, something that you guys touched upon, but it, it's pretty important. So, um, of course, Magnus had this interview after the match where he said he wasn't even sure he would play in the next World Championship. Um, I think he's... a uh, a little bit bored of uh, of of the classical format, um, but just in case people haven't seen this video, what's your somewhat informed, somewhat uninformed opinion about um, how likely we are to see him defend his title? My guess is as good as yours. I guess I asked him about this in one of the interviews I did with him as well, and I can't remember the answer actually. My hunch is he's a competitor and he will play, but he's also not making this critique of the time control and, yeah, the big influence of openings nowadays up. Like, that's how he feels, and I can't speak for him. As a chess fan, I hope that we'll get more matches out of him, but that's all I can say about it. I have no clue. Yeah, and you also said that you're, you're, pretty, you're reasonably happy with the format. Um, overall, is that uh, that accurate? Yeah, like you could argue about, I don't know, maybe 16 games or 18 games instead of 12 to make the price of one game a little lower so people can play a bit more freely. And I'm also not against incorporating Rapid or Blitz or whatever into the format. But in general, especially with some of the messes we've had in the past, it feels like nowadays we have a reasonably stable candidates tournament, a cycle to qualify for the candidates tournament, and then a match, which, yeah, I think it's all right, but I also don't have to play these matches. Uh, so it's, as a fan and as yeah, someone who likes the subtleties of top-level chess, I find them entertaining 
and interesting. But of course, I hear the critique, which I think in a large part also stems from the fact that we had, what is it, 22 out of 24 draws in the last two games, in the last two matches, which of course is unfortunate from a yeah selling it standpoint. But I feel like things could have gone very differently if we look at game one of this match or well, there were many games where one of the sides was in trouble and similarly games three and four of the last match that it played out this way and then in the end when the pressure is mounting it could be that that makes a draw somewhat more of a likely result but I don't feel the format is necessarily to blame and there's a lot of small sample size theater involved too. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there definitely things could have things could have really shaken loose with just one decisive result um, at any point in the match. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, no one agrees. So, no one agrees on what should be done. So maybe they should do as little as possible. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I think if I were Czar, I would go with 16 or 18 game match and tiebreak before the, the tiebreak before the playoff, and that's it. But. I mean, tiebreak before the match. You know what I mean? Um, all right. That's uh, weird, though. Don't you use the tiebreak to break a tie? Yeah, that's the idea. But, I mean, it, you know, it's been argued that if they know in advance uh, who has who wins based on the tiebreak, then there can, there can be no tie in the classical format. So it just would kind of tilt the scales to more fighting chess in the classical. There's, there's not going to be – someone's going to be playing to win in the last game, basically. Yeah, I get the logic. I don't know. We've basically had that when the world champion had draw odds in a lot of the matches in the past, no? Yeah, we have. tie breaks are a more, yeah, are a bad way to settle it. But as you said, everyone has their opinion. I just think, big picture-wise, things aren't so bad. Okay. Yeah, sounds reasonable. Um, and speaking of... Uh, uh, you mentioned the candidates, and I, I re-listened to our last interview where we we correctly per- predicted every detail of uh, that Boom. L- last year's candidates. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, not not quite. Um, you had some incisive analysis, but uh, we didn't we did not correctly predict the winner. Um, but despite that, I'm going to ask you for more predictions. Um, do you have anyone like if you were to pick one or two people as the most likely? Um, it has to be more than one, actually, because one is, I think, fairly obvious who you would pick. Who do you think would be the most likely challenger in, in 2020 for for the crown? Yeah, I asked Magnus the same thing, and he was right last time when he predicted Corona, and he still said that he feels Corona is a bit ahead of the competition, so we're talking most likely I'll go with Fabi again, but the level at the top is very high and these guys are fairly close plus you need a good tournament and so many things breaking your way that I wouldn't give them more than I don't know what a fair number is like a 25% chance to come through but currently we have no reason to not have Fabio as the favorite with his run in 2018 and how he played in the match yeah makes sense I'm looking forward to seeing him getting getting back out there he's been he's been pretty quiet since the match also, he's the only one who's already qualified, right? Which must help. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's definitely from a handicapping perspective, that uh, <laughs> that gives him a big leg up. Right. Um, okay, a couple opening questions, sort of related to the match. Finally. Yeah, oh, you're, yeah, you're so, I mean, this is somewhat embarrassing, but I hadn't watched any of your opening clinics until within wow. the last year. Very you, you, you really know your stuff. Re- really amazing. You're not just... Uh, 
not just uh, freewheeling and um, BSing your way through these uh, these opening variations. So you thought Magnus hires me for my looks, yeah? Uh, I thought it was for your wit. You know, someone's got to... Yeah, gotta... fair enough. <laughs> I think so too, actually. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, I, whatever. I'm just going to... I'll move on. So... Um, so it seemed like you guys mentioned that you felt like you did the best in the English um, in terms of uh, achieving the goal of getting a not necessarily like a distinct edge, but a a dynamic position from which uh, White can try to apply pressure um, because the, the Petrov and the Queen's Gambit decline are just so solid and so well explored that that it's tough to, you know, it's tough to find fresh ideas. Um uh, that that would get Fabiano on on unfamiliar terrain, but I was curious. Like I expected to see more of sort of, or at least it wouldn't have surprised me to see more sort of outright punts with White, like something like e4, e5, bishop c4, avoiding the Petrov and stuff like that, or or uh, you know, being that White is struggling so much, just more sort of. Um, Hang on, let me take some notes. E4, <laughs> E5, B, C4. Yeah, can I um, can I get like residuals on that? Yeah. Um, but seriously <laughs> speaking, first of all, we gotta give Karana and his team a lot of credit. It's not like we didn't know anything about the Queen's Gambit declined and he just recited known theory and made an easy draw. They came up with fresh ideas everywhere, like with Rook D8 here in the Queen's Gambit, then this Queen D8 back here in the second Queen's Gambit, then this C5 Bishop E6 line he played in the Petrov. All of these are very or very fresh concepts at the highest level, and they clearly have put a lot of thought into it and had a lot of weapons that both came as a surprise and can stand the test of time from what I've seen so far which is very impressive to do. So mainly, yeah, kudos to them, obviously. You have your ideas in areas where things could go well, but it's not as simple as, oh, we need to avoid the Petro and play e4, e5, bishop, c4, which, by the way, Magnus has done a couple times. Right, yeah. Even against Karana himself, right? So it's not like he's out of book if you move that bishop. Play. Right, not out of book, but I just feel like the positions, um, they, they're not as theoretical, I would say. Yeah, that depends, like, how much time you spend looking at them, right? Like, <laughs> okay. So, so basically hmm. you're saying there's no escape. I don't know. I'm saying e4, e5, bishop, c4, for example, I don't think would come as much of a surprise after Carlson had used it against Karana. And once you start looking at really any line, like e4, e5, bishop, c4, knight of 6, what do they do? d3, either c6 or knight c6 there. It's also not just, yeah, roll the ball out and play some chess. It's still fighting against the game, liquidating without your opponent having to think. Chess is tough. Yeah, yeah, that it is. Um, okay, and was there any, obviously you're not going to reveal this prep, but was there any, like, one idea that, that the team was really hoping would, would make an appearance on the board? Was there... Well, you'd hope there was more than one idea. Okay, but not... Appearance. Yeah, I just meant like one above all others. Like <laughs> One move to rule them all. Uh -huh. No, there were plenty of ideas in different lines. But yeah, as Kazimchanov said, I don't know, did he say that? Like, it's like an iceberg, 97% yeah, yeah. of the work doesn't get shown and so on. So, no, obviously you hope for stuff, but it doesn't always happen. Right? The yeah. other guys are pretty smart. 
Yeah. I was going to say pretty smart too, but then I thought that's not accurate. They're pretty <laughs> smart. <laughs> All right. Um, speaking of pretty smart, you you revealed some analysis in the video about queen and knight versus queen and bishop. So for anyone who's not familiar with this sort of uh, received wisdom in chess, I think most listeners will be. But, you know, obviously, generally, bishop uh, considered um, an advantage over the knight, all other things being equal, except queen and knight, as we are taught as kids, can actually be an advantage against queen and bishop. But I understand you did um, some huge data analysis on this topic. I might have uh, I might have made up some statistics, but I do think <laughs> that I I looked into it and Queen Bishop actually do outperform Queen Knight slightly because I was taught the same thing Queen Knight they combine so well and they're a great attacking force, which is of course true in many positions. But overall, as a lover of bishops, I couldn't believe that Queen Knight would be superior to Queen Bishop, other things being equal, and I was right. Excellent. You'll have to do a uh, Chess 24 video series on debunking this myth. Boom, that sounds like a best-selling series. <laughs> okay. Uh, Bangkok Chess Club Open, I believe it's called, although for some reason I always just refer to it as the Thai Open. You've got that coming up next month. How's um, how's your chess game? It's rusty. It's rusty. I haven't played much in the last, let's say... Eight months, I had one game in Bundesliga where I played absolutely horribly. <laughs> Didn't know how the pieces were moving. So I'm going to have to do some stuff. I need some advice from you. You're doing all these adult improver series. What do I have to do to get back in shape? I have uh, one month. I, I can't how reveal it. How do I distribute it. my time? You know, <laughs> I have 60 hours. What percentage tactics, <laughs> openings, analyze my own games? What should I do? Sorry, you have to listen to the five hours worth of interviews on this this topic in order to get that information. And anything that you was left on the cutting room floor, I cannot reveal. You know, it's uh, that sounds fair. Just not my place. No, I mean, um, I guess you should do tactics, being that you already know every opening. So, but it's hard work. Those tactics. <laughs> yeah, that's what I want people to know. <laughs> hard work sounds tough. Yeah. All right, tactics. The simple tactics or tough tactics? Uh tough tactics. Unfortunately. No, I think you're wrong on that one. I think Paco Vallejo, he had the same point, that in order to get into shape, one should do simple tactics. Just, you know, work on the reflexes and not try to drive yourself crazy solving some Dvoretsky puzzles where you just get frustrated and you feel like, I can't play at all. Because that normally leads to time trouble if you're a bit rusty anyway and you feel like I really need to penetrate the essence of the position. It's still a useful exercise to improve your understanding long-term. But I think to get into shape for guys like me, it should be simple tactics like grab a book or the tactic trainer of your choice and try to do some simple stuff just so your reflexes are working. Yeah, I that's... could be wrong, though. Well, that's my plan. Might be just an excuse. So I don't have to do any tough <laughs> No, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's like uh, brushing up on a language or an instrument. I mean, if, specifically, if you're out of form, I guess that makes sense. But... You know, here on our Adult Improver series, uh, people are grinding hard. So, uh, <laughs> right. I mean, not not me, mind you, but but uh, but the people working on their game are are. If you're studying every day, it makes sense to challenge yourself. Um, all right, <laughs> <laughs> coaching the Netherlands at the Olympiad. How how was the? Did you? Uh, I know you mentioned Rocky in our last interview. Did you give some inspiring talks to? Uh, Grandmasters Erwin uh, Lamy and Anishkiri and Van Wiley and so on? 
Well, it clearly didn't work. Like, if you look at the final result, even though I did give some pre-touching speeches, like, <laughs> I had them in tears, but I think it might have been a bit too much. They got so worked up that they couldn't focus on their games. But seriously, no, it's a, it's a nice team. I like all these guys, and uh, it was a lot of fun being around them, even though, of course, we very much ran out of gas in the end, like, I think, losing the last two or three matches. So the final result was very disappointing, which... So you're like, you're like a Tom so. Thibodeau-style coach. You rode your players too hard, and, and they just couldn't, they couldn't maintain at the end? Yeah, actually, that is what happened, because... If you have a player like Luke Van Veli, he's like an 18 minutes per game guy these days. But <laughs> we we lost one player along the way, Sergei Tivyakov, who had to deal with an emergency at home. So I had to play these guys every game. And you could <laughs> see that it was like a, like a James Harden situation. Once you get to the playoffs, no no gas left in the tank. Bummer. But you enjoyed the experience nonetheless? Greatly, greatly, yeah. I love being around chess Olympiads. It's it's very different form of inspiring event. Like I mentioned how much I like the World Championship match, but there you're sitting alone um, in some jacuzzi in 30-degree sun in Thailand. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. Well, the Olympiad, everyone's there. It's such a, yeah, for chess standards, it's not the faces you run into at every open. Yeah, it's a very inspiring atmosphere. This gains on sumos then to see how much chess is played all over the world. So yeah. I love being there. Even yeah. though the matches are quite tough as a captain because you're sort of stuck in the playing hall. You're not allowed to to leave and you have to sign the score sheet or one and a half loss in the end. So normally I was just sitting there for six, seven hours reading, yeah. my, reading my book. Yeah, no but, gadgets either. So that that's tough. So, well, what were you reading? Do you remember? What's it called? It's called the Patrick Melrose novels. Okay, it's pretty good stuff. It's a it's a messed up guy with <clears throat> dirty thoughts. Sometimes some messy stuff would happen, like some yeah <clears throat> heavy drug use or some bad things being done to kids in my book, and my facial expression would change. <laughs> and then my right. players told me, "Okay, stop locking." <laughs> so panicked all the time. Well, no, it's just Patrick Melrose getting in trouble. That's, That's good books. Okay. Edward St. Auburn, the Patrick Melrose novels. Okay. There's also a TV show with, what's it, what's it called? Benedict Cumberbatch, which I haven't seen yet. Ah, okay. That's the first. I read the book, but I haven't seen the TV show, so I'm proud of that fact. All right. Now, we'll have to get you back for the TV review. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> did you have a chance to play for Germany at this Olympiad? I don't know. I'm not very active, and I'm not campaigning very much to make the team, but no, I haven't played since 2012, so I don't think so. Because your rating would still, it seems, be in the top four or five, but I guess, uh, you know, <laughs> out, of, out, of, out of sight, out of mind? I don't know. I'm right here. Banter Blitz coming up in 40 minutes. Like, I yeah. think they just don't watch enough Banter Blitz. Like, that, all the flagging yeah. I do gets zero recognition. Yeah, that that must be it. Um, do you, if given a choice between playing and coaching, which do you think uh, you would prefer at this stage of your life? It's hard to say. When it comes to prefer, I kind of like being there, but not having the grind of playing because then, yeah. I mean, I was incredibly busy 
as a coach, but it's still not the same pressure that I feel when you have to prepare and go play your own game. So as an experience, I probably prefer the coaching, but I'm also sort of old-fashioned in a way that I think it's an honor to play for the national team. So should it happen again, which looks doubtful at this point, then, yeah, I would feel, I know, duty is too strong, but I would feel a strong urge to represent the country. Okay. Still, I can't complain at all. I'm very happy with the Dutch job and sad the Olympia didn't go better. So I hope they'll have me back, but I don't know yet. Yeah, yeah, you'll find out in due time. Um, okay, one more real topic and then just a little bit of nonsense and then we'll let you rest up for your your uh, your banter blitz. Some more nonsense. Wow. <laughs> um, How dare you. All right, so I warned you, we were going to actually talk some, uh, some chess games. Um, your favorite Jan Gustafsson chess game. Wow. Actually, I thought about this. I'm pretty sure you asked me this question last time, but I can't remember... No, because I re-listened. Answer. I, I wouldn't have remembered, but I, re- I re-listened. And uh, yeah, I didn't ask you. So maybe let's maybe on it. our first show. That could be. I didn't, I didn't re-listen to that one. Too painful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to, my, to listen yeah, to myself. I recall you... the circumstances. No, I yes. hate it. To my own voice. Like, yeah. You, of course, um, were a seasoned pro already. But anyway, go on. What was I going to say? I think I gave some corny answer. Like, I hope my best game lies in the future. Which, well, it hasn't happened since then, so I'm still <laughs> waiting. But seriously, no, I don't think about my games in those terms, so I wouldn't know. Like, I I normally enjoyed the ones where my preparation to keep playing on the stereotype worked very well. I had a nice game against Nidic, I think, in the European Championship 2007, where one was black without having to break a sweat because I knew everything. It's not much of an achievement, but still made me very happy. I had a very good game preparation-wise against Rothstein in one of these World Cups. It's all 10 years in the past. Food for thought. <laughs> and, but yeah, I I don't really know. Okay. All right. Well, we coax. That, that qualifies. We coax some answers out of you. Um, I'll, I'll link to them in the description. And what about your favorite overall game? Non-Jan Gustafsson category. Uh, those I'm less familiar with. Um, <laughs> The Evergreen? No, I don't. I'm, uh, I like some of the games the the Chinese guys played recently. I enjoyed this game where Yi won against Bruzon. So that was a cool. Oh game. yeah, that was the the modern. What did they call it? The the modern some mo, some catchy name for th- a modern. I think I did a video and I called it what did I call it? Game of the Century or something like that. Yeah, and a lot of pushback because people think there's other games played in the century as well. <laughs> anyway. I enjoyed that one, and I also enjoyed this game by, I'm not sure I know the names, Ding Liren was black, and by Jin Shish, or, sorry if I'm bungling that name, but Ding Liren, sacrificing the house there. Okay. Uh, I think Chinese League, let's say 2017, that's not a spectacular okay. game. I might need a link for that one, Jan, although uh, I'll, I'll try to track it down on my own. Um, you match. <laughs> and uh stories uh stories either from the olympiad you know obviously i'm always asking you for for book recommendations and stuff but drinking gambling you must have some uh something just on the edge where um uh no one will hurt you for revealing it but it will still entertain our listeners no you know what the problem is in this day and age that we live in like normally the highlight of any olympiad is the so-called bermuda party which is before the rest day 
um, people get wasted and funny things happen. But nowadays, everyone's filming everything. Like these smartphones, you need to do it like, who does it? I think Dave Chappelle, that you have to hand yeah, in check your the, phones. Yeah, check the phones in, yeah. Right, because you really can't misbehave anymore because you know everything will be all over Facebook, Instagram, you name it, the next day. So there's no more stories. Nothing's happening because we're all too conscious of our brand. Huh. And are you uh, an exception to this rule or are you guilty as well? <laughs> I've been boring before social media. So <laughs> okay. It <laughs> doesn't change my life that much. But I do think it's true. Like, that, yeah, there's literally videos of the Bermuda party going up all over the place the next day. So people don't really misbehave anymore. No, oh, bummer. Okay, so 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 we'll let you slide on that. And speaking of the of the drinking, um, what what's in the chest twenty four mug when you're doing the banter blitzes and announcing? The, is it always coffee, always water, um, or is it like uh, depending on your mood? Normally, I just drink too much coffee over the day. Recently, I've been battling with Hamburg winter, which I'm guessing is similar to. Where are, you, where are you at again? Princeton. To Princeton winter? Yeah. Like, so everyone has the flu, so I've been drinking some like green tea and yeah, I'm boring stuff. But yeah, normally I drink too much coffee. Okay. Yeah, likewise. All right. Um, nonsense. So we need your Netflix recommendations now, Jan. Do you have a script you follow? Like... <clears throat> Eighty uh, Magnus questions. That's accurate, yeah. And, but don't worry, this is the last thing. No, 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 I'm not worried. Got to close with the nonsense. Or... Well, we can't upset Donny Ariel. When is the Donny Ariel episode? Coming? You know, I no. asked him for some questions. For well, we'll get to when he's coming on. But I asked him for some questions, but he didn't ask anything that I would deem uh, safe for work or for you know a. Um, a family-friendly audience. So I, I can't repeat the questions that he asked me, although he says he's asked you them before. So, um, I mean, there's nothing too too off-brand. Co- off but um, nonetheless, uh, we he has an image to cultivate, um, as do we all. So, I'm and, very curious now. Anyway. And as for when he'll be on the show, unfortunately, he's interviewing for jobs, so it's an especially bad time. Um, but sooner or later, uh, we'll, we'll get him on and then edit anything out remotely controversial, which will be the whole interview. Um, Okay. He told me he has two weeks off between jobs, which seems like a perfect time slot to me to play the Thailand Open. And <laughs> yeah, I think there's like a 0.08% chance it will happen. Wow. If he's going, I, I don't know. I might have to disappear from from my family. Um, yeah. But, but I'll um, take my chances. All right. So show recommendations. I don't know. I haven't been watching that much. Like, I'm... I'm watching True Detective season three, which is very slow. Mm, it's good; it's good acting and all that stuff. But sometimes I lose track of stuff because not much is going on. I'm I'm not as tuned in into pop culture as I used to be. You know no, how it is. I'm a family man. I mean, I what's going time. on? You said you haven't watched an NBA game. You're not watching TV True. series. You're you're losing your fastball. That's a, a baseball metaphor. Thanks. <laughs> um, let's see. Wow, this is embarrassing that I have to think about this. Now, actually, I've been like a movie student recently. I'm trying to catch up on the Oscar movies, so I'm watching all this pretentious stuff like 
and can you ever forgive me or burning or roma i'm very caught up on the art of independent cinema burning gotcha. is a fantastic movie okay like S- south korean independent filmmaking this is my new my new <clears throat> niche that i'm gonna try to stake out but cool. no, i haven't i haven't watched much i have to admit it's that makes part, me sad to think about that that dang uh world championship match yeah, really? you already have no friends. You still don't find time for <laughs> watching TV. It's upsetting. What are you up to? What does Ben Johnson's life look like when you're not chess coaching, podcasting, driving your kids around? Like, do you go out? Do you have a beer with your new Princeton Ivy League elite friends? What do you do? <laughs> well, I mean, now I'm only an hour from Philly, so I actually see, uh, you know, your your arch enemy Greg Shahadi once in a while. Uh, wow, see, see some other old friends but i mean it's very rare i you know i'm lucky if i socialize once a month mostly it's just the the daddy and work grind um but uh i wanted to ask you do have you seen atlanta important question i've seen season one i haven't seen season two yet did you enjoy it i i did enjoy it it's weird it's a bit too smart for me like normally it he has stuff to say and I I just want a dumb joke or a murder mystery so I can sort of uh, follow okay. while a lot of the culturally commentary is a bit over my head but I, I did enjoy it obviously very uh, well crafted <laughs> clever stuff yeah I, I would say season 2 is even more like that I like season 2 better but um, but it's definitely it's probably even artsier so uh, do, do with that information as you please um Okay, Jan, what's going on with Chess24? you have any uh, video series we should be looking out for? Anything you're announcing coming up? I know. We just published Laurent Fresinet's series on the Berlin, which we're trying to make chess even more boring. So yeah. giving people a black Berlin repertoire. But I was producing the series, which means I was sitting in the next room doing nothing while he was recording. <laughs> and I think... It's it's excellent. So if you're looking for an E4, E5, or a, a repertoire with black against one E4, I think that's good. Yeah, I, now that I have to get in shape for Thailand Open, I'll be working on some openings. I'll be filling some gaps and probably releasing some some stuff. Other than that, the Chess 24 anniversary is coming up. I'm not sure when this will be published. February 24th it will be big day of shows with maybe some very big names. Oh, interesting. Unfortunately, this is going to come out the twenty sixth, unless. Uh, wow, Rick. But it will be archived. Your, uh, your, your big names, huh? Yeah, yeah. The big names they normally make the archives. Okay, so people can still check for it after the fact. Um, no, no announcing gigs with uh, GM Svidler lined up currently, or that can There's be revealed. Some stuff at least. in the making. Yeah, we did Vikanze, and there will, there will be more. The most likely. But I don't know yet. I shouldn't speak out. Like, there's a lot of talks. But yeah, we'll we'll be doing more talking for sure. Excellent. All right. Well, Jan, thank you as always. I'm glad we uh we haven't completely run out of things to talk about yet. Um, but I I really appreciate it whenever you're able to uh bless us with your presence. Wow, you're making it sound like I'm not sitting at home every single day waiting <laughs> for you to ask me to reappear on right. the PCC as I like to call it. PCP. Like oh, PCP. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. Why do I think PCC? Because I can't spell probably. But PCP sounds wrong. It does, and... yeah. No, but it's not like I'm steaming here when I see, uh, he has to have Ben Feingold on again. 
So we know <laughs> at this point, after four Greg Shahadi episodes, that Greg is very lazy and he likes CrossFit and he thinks feminism is a good thing. Like, how much more do I have to listen to this? Rapid chess is better than classical chess? Hot take. Um, no, no, no. Thank, thanks for having me. It's been an honor. Anytime. Excellent, Jan. All right. Uh, good luck with your Branter Blitz. I hope you still have some material for it. <laughs> yeah. That'll be tough. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Okay. Excellent as always. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. That includes my producer, Matthew Passy, and Geert Vandervelt for supplying the intro music. I also want to thank all of you who have helped spread the word about the show. That includes people who tell your friends and write positive reviews on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. Every little bit helps. But most of all, I want to thank the people who provide financial support. As you guys have heard me say, I spend a lot of time on this show, about five hours a week. And even though it's my favorite aspect of the work that I do, I would not be able to do all this without financial support. So most of all, I want to thank my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners. They are... Chessable.com, Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adam Vrancourge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Benjamin Handelman, Brian Castro of BetterChessTraining.com, Bill Moran, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, I am Carlos Perdomo of ChessAtlanta.com, Chad Hilton, Chad Oliver, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Chabri, Christopher Woods, I am Christoph Zalicki, a.k.a. Chess Explain, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, Daniel Vine-E, David Cramley, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am elect Donnie Ariel, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, I am Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, GM Jakob Ogar, James Bonastia, Jason Woolham, Jeff Anderson, Jennifer Valens of OffTheRook.com, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jernigan, WGM Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovrutsky, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Laura Belyavsky, Lucio Casada Silva, Matthew Passi, Martin Habich, Matthew Tedesco, the Mysterious Moonmaster 9000, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Nathan Webster, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Quality Chess Books, Randall Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchek of DiplomatChess.com, Robert Steiner, Ryan Stone, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Steiner Lima, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, WGM Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Casper, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrancouge, FM Zhao Cheng, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Wow, the list is getting long. Let's keep getting it longer, guys. Thanks a lot, and I'll catch you all next week. Podcast Network.